Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 2.8, The Run-Up to Rebellion. Last time, we had begun exploring the rising discontent that had infiltrated the Virginia colony during the 1660s and 1670s. A mixture of rising taxes plus inefficient and corrupt collection practices had many of the common planters in Virginia struggling to find a way to both pay their tax bill and manage to find a way to eat and clothe their own families. As though to make things worse, all of this is precipitated by the English passing the Navigation Acts. As I mentioned last week, we are going to be spending a lot of time with the Navigation Acts when we get to the 1760s and 70s. However, for the Virginia colony, these new laws lead to a devaluation of tobacco, the crop that the entire Virginia colony was built upon. Unfortunately for our settlers, it is as tobacco is being devalued that taxes are rising on the product that they are producing. Making matters worse for the Virginia government is the unequal method in which taxes are being collected. First, the taxes were being collected at just half their actual market value. This means that the colonists had to pay double the amount of tobacco just to meet this difficult burden. On top of that, the colonists who had the most, namely the large landowners, were all a part of the Virginia Assembly, which was exempted from having to pay the head tax themselves. In this situation, those with the fewest resources were paying what had become an extraordinarily high amount of taxes, and those with the means were conveniently exempt from having to pay any at all. Add in a nice dose of mismanagement and, possibly some skimming from Governor Berkeley and the Assembly, and you have got a powder keg that was ready to explode. Well, the colony teetered on a knife's edge for years, with discontent simmering just below the surface. Conditions in the middle of the 1670s is going to push the colonists over the edge, from loudly complaining to open revolt. King Philip's War in New England had broken out, which limited the grain supply available to Virginia. Repeated Indian raids had damaged two years' worth of corn harvest for the frontier planters. Then, as though just icing on the cake, drought further damaged the 1676 harvest. Real fears of starvation were abounding in Virginia at a time where the colonial government appeared deaf to the concerns and was preoccupied with figuring out ways to squeeze a little bit more tax revenue out of the already beleaguered colonists. These things are the ultimate cause of the revolt that is going to explode throughout Virginia in 1676. These stresses were more than a decade in the making. These stresses are going to create a powder keg which, while dangerous, still needs a spark to explode into open rebellion. The spark is going to come in the spring and summer of 1676 and is going to send Virginia spiraling into a state of civil war. This week, we are going to spend our time exploring the events that took a bunch of discontented settlers and threw them into open revolt against Governor Berkeley and the Virginia Assembly. Chiefly, we are going to look at what is happening with the local Indian tribes, how they became a threat to the local settlers, as well as the response from the Virginia government and the response from those colonists who had reached their breaking point. William Berkeley could trace back much of his popularity to his dealing with Indian affairs. It was Berkeley who was governor following the third and final Powhatan War. He was largely credited with the victory over the tribes that it caused so many problems for the Jamestown settlers from their arrival. However, by the time 1676 rolled around, conditions had changed in Virginia. The colony had grown substantially and in general was more politically conscious than it had been during the prior engagements. 
At the same time, conditions between the Indian tribes on the frontier was also changing. The Susquehanna tribe, an Iroquois tribe, had found themselves embroiled in a fight that they had been going through for much of the past century. The Susquehanna had become a major trading partner with the English and were instrumental in moving fur for the fur trade. The fur trade had been steadily growing for years, but by 1676 was increasingly becoming a major source of revenue for the English. The major traders in that realm were the Susquehanna Indians. As this was a very profitable venture for the English, the Susquehanna tribe had been treated well by the English, as keeping the lucrative trade moving was an important point for everybody. The Susquehanna people had become extremely involved in the fur trade through their connections with the Dutch in New Netherland. Specifically, following the fall of New Sweden to the Dutch in 1655, the Susquehanna gained nearly complete control trading in the Delaware colony. With the other Iroquois nations battling hard for the European trading rights, it often pushed the tribes into direct competition with one another. This competition often turned violent and led to a state of near-constant conflict. As conflict between the Iroquois tribes increased, the English on the Virginia frontier also continued to expand past easily defendable positions. Part of this can be explained by the events that had taken place during the 1640s. With the fall of the Powhatan Confederacy, there was something of a power vacuum that now existed on the Virginia frontier. Other Indian tribes were quick to fill in the holes, while the English felt more comfortable expanding freely into that frontier. The predictable result of this was that the Virginia frontier suddenly found itself colliding with the Indian frontier, two disastrous results. There had been, for the most part, peace between the Indians and the Virginia settlers in the years after the fall of the Powhatan Confederacy. A major reason for this was that following that war, Berkeley had evicted many of the tribes from along the frontier. However, movement on part of both the Indians and the English alike had brought the groups back into direct contact. Throughout the 1660s, conflict remained relatively mild. There would be accusations of theft on both sides, but for the most part, things remained relatively peaceful. In 1675, things do take a more ominous turn when a Doeg Indian killed an Englishman in a dispute over some stolen hogs. The English responded by sending Colonel George Mason and John Brent to intercept the guilty party. If you are curious, we are currently talking about George Mason I. He is the great-grandfather of George Mason IV, who is much better known from his time during the Revolutionary Era. He is also the person who the university is named after. Here is where things begin to go south for the English. Having chased the Doeg North, the English proved to have a poor sense of the geopolitical status of the area. The Susquehannock, as previously discussed, had been on the move and had moved into that same area. Coming across them, Mason ordered his men to open fire on two cabins where he thought the Doeg were hiding out. Unfortunately, Mason called this wrong, and in the ensuing firefight, 14 members of the innocent Susquehanna tribe now lie dead. Relations with the Susquehanna tribe had been good prior to this incident. However, they suddenly turned into a serious problem for the English. Increasing raids on the frontier by the Susquehannock was a growing threat for the English living along the frontier. Knowing they needed to deal with the problem, in the fall of 1675, both the colonies of Virginia and Maryland joined together for a joint expedition under the leadership of a Virginia planter, Colonel John Washington. And, if you are now sitting there again wondering if a Washington in Virginia is of any relation to George Washington, 
The answer is yes. John Washington is the great-grandfather of George Washington. The same George Washington that is someday going to have a complicated on-and-off-again friendship with George Mason IV. So yes, there are a lot of great-grandfathers in today's episode. Taking up in a fort just south of where modern-day Washington, D.C. sits, the Susquehannock people quickly found themselves surrounded by Washington and his men. Knowing that the situation was serious, the Susquehannock quickly decided that the best course was to negotiate with the English and hopefully try to find a way out of the situation. Washington himself, however, was operating on very different orders. Simply put, he had been ordered to eliminate the threat through any means necessary. The Susquehannock sent out five chiefs to deal with the joint force. Denying involvement in the recent murders and harassment on the frontier, the Susquehannock placed the blame on the Seneca war party that had come from the north. The colonial troops were not convinced by this story, and on the orders of somebody, and it's really not clear who that was or if it was Washington himself, they executed the five men. The Virginia troops would later blame the Maryland troops for the execution when they realized the ramifications of what they had just done. This was, for the Susquehannock, nothing short of a declaration of war. The Susquehannock led numerous attacks against Virginians along the frontier. Governor Berkeley at this point realized that he had a very serious problem on his hands. At one point, he was looking at sending another expedition out to deal with the increased violence. However, retreated not wanting to further escalate the problem. By this point, King Philip's War had broken out in New England, and the last thing that Berkeley wanted to do was bring that level of fighting to Virginia. It is hard in this moment, looking back at an event that took place 350 years ago, to try to guess the motivation of Berkeley. His official company stance was not wanting to bring further conflict or something akin to King Philip's War into Virginia. However, that answer is not going to satisfy those who are living along the frontier. Those who are actively having their property stolen and destroyed, their crops burnt, or in some cases, losing their lives. Rather, Berkeley opts that instead of an offensive war, a defensive battle should be brought with an increase in fortifications. As we discussed last week, Virginia was already paying a high amount of taxes that were pushing the colonists to the breaking point. The response of the Virginia Assembly was to increase taxes and build a series of new fortifications. The fortifications were largely granted to the large landowners, you know, the friends of Berkeley's who were also typically on the assembly and thus exempted from paying taxes. Those guys are the ones who are now going to receive tax revenue from the colony to build fortifications that basically absolutely no one thought would work. A huge part of the problem here is that the entire system reeked of indifference and corruption. Comments by the planters on the frontier included criticism that these forts were that in just name only. Oftentimes, they were described as being little more than large piles of mud and that they served no practical purpose. Much as was the case in 1622, Virginia had expanded beyond where the existing fortification system was going to offer any meaningful protection to those along the frontier borders. However, this plan to build a new series of defense fortifications was seen as being woefully inadequate. They were spread out and poorly built. Any colonist would have recognized that they were not going to be much help in a fight, which then also begs the question of where the taxes they're paying are going if not to advancing the defenses. 
So why was Berkeley's strategy to build a series of fortifications instead of an actual military response? There are a couple theories for this. As I discussed earlier today, there is some thought that Berkeley may have been spooked by King Philip's war up in New England. Now, as I said last week, once we finish up with Bacon's Rebellion, we are going to spend several episodes going through King Philip's war and its ramifications. However, as a quick rundown, what had broken out in New England was a war between the English settlers and their Indian allies against a collection of tribes made up of the Wampanoags and Narragansett warriors. The war is going to last from 1675 until 1678 and was absolutely devastating to the New Englanders. Towns were burnt, casualties were high, and the economy of the colony suffered greatly. The economy of the Plymouth colony would never fully recover and would ultimately end up being rolled into the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1691. The settlers in Virginia were already aware of the hardships that New England was feeling. Beyond that fact, suddenly the important food imports from New England disappeared. The beginning of King Philip's War preceded Bacon's Rebellion by a full year. Berkeley would have been aware of the scale of the conflict in New England and understandably didn't want such a fate to come into Virginia. A serious amount of anger was levied towards Berkeley under the idea that he was using war as a method to enrich his friends and the other members of the assembly. The taxes that were being raised were being given directly to those large landowners who were typically viewed with contempt by the average farmer. It was their plantations and their well-off owners that were getting the money of the planters who were already stretched so thin. In addition, there were also allegations that ran rampant that Berkeley was trying to protect his own personal fur trade empire. The now much-aggrieved Susquehannock were important players in the fur trade. Well, Virginia had become so well-known for their tobacco exports, the closest thing that Virginia had to a secondary market was in furs. While the fur trade is often much more thought of as something that the northern colonies participated in, it was still enough that Berkeley didn't want to cut off his primary source to that lucrative market. A war with the Susquehannock would all but certainly cripple the trade within Virginia. Colonists and planters were not ignorant of this fact and quickly turned to accusing Berkeley of valuing the revenue from the fur trade more than the lives of the people who were supposedly under his protection. And to be fair, there is some evidence that supports this position that Berkeley was acting to save the fur trade. A law passed back in 1661 established that anybody who wanted to engage in the fur trade must get a license from the governor and be of known integrity. This law basically meant that if you as an individual wanted in on the profitable fur trade market, well, then you had better be friends with the governor. After all, it is going to be the governor who is going to determine whether or not you get a piece of the pie. It was indeed Berkeley who got to determine whether or not you are a person of integrity. If Berkeley is your buddy, it is a pretty safe bet that your integrity is much improved. Everybody in Virginia saw this for what it was. It turned the fur trade into a club for Berkeley and his cohorts to make more money while going out of their way to keep the general population out. The fewer people being allowed to participate in the fur trade is going to make sure that the supply remains limited, hence inflating the cost of furs, translating into greater profits for Berkeley and his friends. Well, this entire thing was not necessarily surprising to the colonists. After all, this is what Berkeley had been doing for years. Suddenly, however, in the context of 1676, this entire endeavor seems much more nefarious. 
when you look at the 1661 law in conjunction with the passive attempts by the Virginia government to control the Indian threat, the idea that Berkeley was trying to protect the fur trade fits. Obviously, he was interested in keeping this as a small club. The last thing Berkeley would logically want to do is take a course of action that would threaten the profits for him and his buddies. If you're wanting to take more of a kind look towards Governor Berkeley, the argument becomes that he is simply not interested in being the leader of a genocide. There has been some evidence of this as well. Following the attack by Washington, Berkeley was very upset and condemned the murder of the Indians, hence why the Virginians attempted to say that it was actually those from Maryland who did it. This might lend some credence to the idea that Berkeley really didn't want to exterminate the Indians on the frontier, as he had known them to be historically friendly to the colony. It also, however, doesn't do much to discount the idea that his condemnation of Washington is because he made a complex situation worse and further endangered the fur trade. Either way, it is not a good look for Governor Berkeley. Making matters worse and standing as what should have been a huge warning to Berkeley of things to come, the planters on the frontiers supported Washington for his actions. They didn't want pacification. They were having their property destroyed and their very lives were being put at risk. They were angry and they wanted a response. For his part, there seems to be little evidence that Berkeley was at all tuned into the support for Washington following the attack and the growing discontent towards him personally. So now, just for a moment, pretend that you are a frontier farmer in Virginia. You're being taxed to a point where feeding your family and meeting your tax burden seems like an impossible task. You are taking notice of the fact that those with the most means are finding themselves exempted from the taxes, while the screws just keep getting turned tighter and tighter on you. You hear the rumblings that the governor and the assembly are corrupt as they make huge profits while you struggle to survive. Now, on top of all of this, Indian aggression on the frontier means that both your property and the safety and lives of you and your family are at risk. You assume that the Virginia government is going to do something to protect you. Instead, however, all you get is a tax hike for some pointless dirt mounds that you know are not going to do anything to help you. When Washington acts with the decisiveness you want, he is called out for his actions. Basically, the response to your plight is a tax hike to make sure that the rich get richer while providing you with no meaningful protection. By the time 1676 had rolled around, it was evident to the planters that Virginia's government was more concerned with maintaining their profit margins than they were with protecting those along the frontiers. There was a seething anger at this point that was just about ready to explode. All they needed was for somebody to harness that anger and strike back at what they viewed as oppression. Enter into our story, Nathaniel Bacon. We have managed to spend an episode and a half talking about Bacon's rebellion, and yet still have not actually met Mr. Bacon. Well, it is time to change that. Nathaniel Bacon was born in Suffolk, England on January 2nd, 1647. Bacon's family was well-connected in England. Growing up under the light of the English Civil Wars, Bacon was a bright child, enrolling in Cambridge in 1660. However, smart as he was, Bacon was never the most studious, and as a teenager, a rebellious streak took over. After being kicked out of Cambridge, Bacon studied under the scientist John Ray. 
1663, Bacon, along with two other students and Ray, went on a grand tour of Europe. The trip for Bacon was cut short, however, while on his way to Rome when he contracted smallpox. Well, Bacon survived, this gave his father an excuse to recall Bacon from his tour of Europe and start him on the path to a respectable career in the law. Once he became a lawyer, he relocated to London, where the Bacons had a long history of practicing the law. In 1670, Bacon married Elizabeth, the daughter of Sir Edward Duke. Now, Sir Edward Duke was not super excited about Bacon marrying his daughter. Duke actually denied Bacon the right to marry his daughter. However, Elizabeth and Bacon went behind his back and married anyway. Duke was so angry about this that he disinherited his daughter and would never speak to her again. His concern was that Bacon was nothing more than a con man, which, yeah, actually, Sir Edward Duke wasn't totally wrong. The details are slim. However, there are allegations that were thrown at Bacon in his practice of law that he may have cheated a man out of his inheritance. Either way, Bacon found himself catching the ire of both his own family as well as his in-laws. With pressure all around, Bacon suddenly decided that maybe Virginia would be a pretty nice place to go. With everybody at this point pretty mad at the young Bacon, they all agreed with his plan to immigrate, arriving in Virginia in 1674 at the age of just 27. Bacon was about to set out on a new life in the colonies. After arriving in Virginia, Bacon would meet up with his 54-year-old cousin, also named Nathaniel Bacon. The older Bacon helped his younger cousin by buying him a plot of land some 40 miles upriver from Jamestown. This placed Bacon right out there on the frontier, which was something that would profoundly change the life for the young Bacon. A gentleman like Bacon quickly caught the eye of the colonial government and was invited by William Berkeley to be a member of the Virginia Council. Nobody, however, should sit around thinking that Bacon was some kind of great statesman, despite now being a member of the council. By all accounts, Bacon was pretty subpar at the job. He hardly ever attended the assembly and showed virtually no interest in leadership. During this period, relations between the colonists and the Susquehannock was at an all-time low. Bacon was in the assembly on the day that Berkeley decided that it was a good idea to raise taxes and set up that great fort system along the frontier that we have been talking about for most of today. For Bacon, the events that were going to push him towards revolution were on the verge of happening. With his land out on the frontier, the events unfolding around Bacon put him on the front lines of the battle. Four of the people working for Bacon were killed in Indian raids. First, it was a farm manager of his, followed later by three servants. Suddenly, Bacon found himself at the head of a fight that he had not intentionally intended to take. Bacon could now see the grave threat that was posed to those settlers along the frontier. He fully understood, having learned directly through spilled blood, the pointless nature of those little mud piles that Berkeley called forts. He understood that the very lives of the settlers were at stake, and it's hard to think that he wasn't at least a little concerned for his own safety and that of his family. Having a place on the council, understanding the plight of the frontier settlers, and fully understanding how little Berkeley was doing to protect the colonists made Bacon a logical leader. Bacon had no intention of backing down from this fight. Seeing the struggles on the frontier and having his own men killed by Indian raids, Bacon quickly raised a force and led an expedition against the Susquehannock. With their lives in danger, feeling ignored and oppressed by the government back in Jamestown, 
Bacon had little trouble raising people to his cause. Along the way, his men were joined by the Akanichi Indians. This is an important reminder that none of this is happening in a vacuum. We are focused on the singular struggle right now, namely the Susquehannock versus the English. However, always remember that for the Susquehannock, they have enemies among the other tribes as well. Tribes that are more than willing to join in the fight to vanquish an old enemy. The Akanichi were able to lead the Virginia militia to the Susquehannock tribe, and what ensued was a slaughter. While I was unable to find actual numbers, all of the sources were clear that the Virginia militia butchered the tribe once they found them. Following the battle with the Susquehannock, their relationship with the Akanichi also rapidly deteriorated. After a few members of Bacon's army are killed, the rest of the militia strikes back against the Akanichi tribe, who ultimately fared little better than the Susquehannock. It is unclear what caused the sudden falling out, though a dispute over the spoils of war from the raid on the Susquehannock tribe is suspected. What is clear, though, is that at the end of the day, large numbers of the Akanichi tribe lie dead. Bacon boasted of his great victory, about how he had destroyed all of them. Ultimately, however, Bacon's Rebellion really isn't a story about the conflict between the Native Americans and the English. Back in Jamestown, Governor Berkeley was absolutely incensed about what had occurred. He had made clear that there was not going to be another expedition. His plan was to take up defensive fortifications. Suddenly, he was left with a lot of dead natives in an attack that he had expressly forbidden. Bacon, a member of the assembly, had completely defied him. This was a direct challenge to Berkeley's power, a challenge that he was going to have to respond to. Berkeley wasted no time in declaring Nathaniel Bacon a traitor, a move that is going to send Virginia spiraling into rebellion. Next time, we are going to look at the aftermath of Bacon's defiance of Berkeley and the subsequent results of Berkeley declaring him a traitor. Already deeply unpopular, Berkeley is going to quickly find himself fighting not just for his political life, but for his actual life. I want to thank you all for listening this week, and I hope you are all staying healthy and staying safe. I will see you all back here in two weeks' time as we watch revolt erupt in Virginia. <laughs>